Our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mountain. Hear now God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. It's uh, great to be uh, with you all here again uh, this morning. so it's been a little bit, so I'm glad uh, that I'm able to come back and be with you and worship with you, and my family's able to come uh, this morning. And uh, so this morning, we're, we're actually not um, going to look at all of Beatitudes. Uh, we're just going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the kind of Beatitudes in general, but we're really just going to concentrate on verse 3, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and this begins the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is a very famous teaching of Jesus, uh, as we see in verses 1 and 2, to his disciples. Uh, not to the crowd, but actually to his disciples. Um, and I think they're often misunderstood, um, possibly because they're, they can be overly familiar to us. For those of you who've grown up kind of in the church or around Christianity, um, these sayings, you know, you hear them talked about a lot. You can kind of get overly familiar with them. Um, but I think each one of these kind of blessed sayings contains such depth. And that's why we're just really going to focus on verse 3 this morning. Uh, so as we kind of dive in, let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you uh, uh, for the message you delivered to your disciples um, and that you now deliver to us, um, your disciples, Lord. And I pray that you would help us uh, understand um, these kind of short sayings, but that contain such depth, Lord. And just, again, continue to reveal your gospel and your grace and your love uh, to each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you think of the good life, I don't know what comes to mind. And oftentimes uh, it's the holiday season. And I think oftentimes the holidays, uh, whether for good or for bad, can be time of reflection on the last year, on the year to come, on kind of what we want our lives to be like, on the good life. It can be a time uh, where we do feel very blessed, uh, surrounded by family. It can also be a time where we feel very alone. Um, very sad. Uh, the holidays can be a very rough time. It can be anything but sort of the good life. Uh, but when I say the term like good life or feeling blessed, I don't know what comes to mind uh, for you. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, that 
my wife Lena and I have been discussing a lot is some of our extended family this year uh, were not with us to celebrate the holidays because they all went to Disney World. And, and that seems like the good life to us because last year at this time, uh, we were able to, for the first time um, in our children's lives and for many, many, many years in both Lena and my life, um, we were able to go to the Disney World. And, and I remember walking into the Magic Kingdom for the first time uh, in my life, you know, probably in 20, 30 years for me, and feeling like this is the good life. Uh, this is blessing. And now this, this year, it doesn't feel so great because, the other, you know, our other family members are getting to go, but we're just at home, um, even though we love Memphis too. And, you know, I don't know what the good life think, you know, is to y'all. It could be, you know, the weekend, you know, you begin games after all your practice for the week and now it's the big event. You know, it could be just waking up to watch the big games. If, you know, the good life, if you're, especially if you're an Alabama fan, could have been very much uh, last night and hopefully next week for you. Um, you know, that it could be just time on the beach with friends. It could be the holidays when you get all your children and grandchildren finally gathered around you. Um, and, and you kind of just get that feeling of, of family. That could be the good life to you. And it could be the opening night of a play, you know, or, or the opening night of a big gig you've sent, spent so much time rehearsing for. Um, it could be, you know, getting a, a victory royale in Fortnite, a video game or something like that. Um, there's all sorts of things that can have mind a feeling like I've arrived. This is the good life. You know, and these are kind of all different varying pictures of kind of human flourishing or, or happiness, you know, that, that I think Jesus delights when we enjoy life. Um, because one of the things about Jesus is he was somebody who came and attended lots of parties and went to lots of feasts and he loved celebrating. Um, but this is not kind of the blessed or flourishing with which Jesus' sermon here is occupied. This is not the blessing that we think of when we read the Beatitudes, this kind of sense of good life. You know, because when we think of flourishing or the good life, we tend to think of external things or situations, you know. No one is sick right now, you know, that, that we've had a good year financially. Man, we are blessed, That's usually the way we think of terms of human flourishing or blessing or or kind of a state of blessedness. But Jesus here, especially in the entire Sermon on the Mount, is focused on the heart. He's focused on our eternal state of being, our character. Uh, You know, where we are when things around us are good or when things around us are bad. Where are we? You know, because you might notice that while, you know, life contains so much goodness and beauty and pleasure and love, uh, this fall world can also really stink. It can really be hard. It can be a, a big struggle. And, and, and it can be really sad. And so to be blessed or to flourish, you know, is not necessarily here in this sermon someone who is free from pain and discomfort, you know, attains all their desires you know, leads kind of a joyful and easy life. Actually, what Jesus is offering us here in the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation into a way of being in the world that will result in joy, that will result in happiness and flourishing. You know, not just for you, but for others around you, despite the external circumstances in your lives. 
Eugene Peterson, I think this is printed in your bulletin up front, um, but Eugene Peterson, who just recently passed away, wrote this uh, and kind of wrote this around the Sermon on the Mount. Scripture does not always present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling invite, live into this. This is what it looks like to be a human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is invoked in becoming and maturing as a human being. You know, it's, it's looking, you know, it's reading all the narratives in the Old and New Testament, looking at the character and the virtues that lead to blessing. You know, again, often individually, but also corporately in community, and, you know, in the Old Testament, especially as, as in the nation of Israel, you know, or as the New Testament in the church. You know, and so I'll give you, uh, I always have to say, uh, I'll give you a nerd alert here, um, you know, as, as why I talk about why I think the Beatitudes are trying to convey this to us, you know, and how they're often mis- misunderstood. Uh, because like when I, you know, growing up, you know, and honestly, even now after attending seminary, uh, when I hear a pastor start to talk about, well, in the original Greek, I tend to kind of roll my eyes. Okay, I get it. You went to seminary. Um, uh, and so, and so I always found it kind of sounding elitist and snooty. So forgive me, but in the original Greek here, uh, you know, blessed is, and I never sound more Southern when I try to pronounce Greek, but, uh, makorios, uh, which means kind of a certain way of being that produces happiness and flourishing. That's what blessed means here. Makarios, a certain way of being that produces happiness and flourishing. Uh, but, but often, I think, when we think of blessed, we often think of divine favor upon us. You know, God or, or some other higher being doing something for us, like God blessed you with a good job, you know, that, you know or say, you know, God bless you after, you know, sneeze, hoping that God will bless, you know, that person with health. That kind of blessing is a different word in Greek. It's not makarios. No, it's eulogetos. And being blessed by God or divine favor. And so when any time the Bible talks about that kind of blessing, it's eulogetos. But here we have makarios. And so look at verse 3. This is not saying if you are poor in spirit, you will be blessed by God. It's saying that to flourish, one must be poor in spirit. And that the poor in spirit are blessed and flourishing because... The kingdom of heaven is theirs. So that back part is not a reward, but a reason behind the flourishing. You know, so the Beatitudes show a characteristic of Christians that brings flourishing. And and though it seems very counterintuitive to us, we don't think, you know, brokenness, sadness, or weakness, as in the following verses, bring about happiness or flourishing. You know, literally verse 4 could read, you know, oh, happy or oh, flourishing are the sad, which seems to make no sense. But Jesus answers the seeming paradox with the because statement after, the for statement, which is usually a gracious gift from God's love, you know, for us and for them. An experienced salvation, you know, life in the kingdom, you know, comfort, satisfaction. And so now let's look specifically at verse three and kind of dive in. Flourishing are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, when I think of poor spirit, 
You know, I always think uh, of my freshman year at Vandy, and, and, and this might take a little bit of explanation, but uh, my freshman year at Vanderbilt, uh, the, the Titans were at that point not the Tennessee Titans. They were the Nashville Oilers, or had been in my mind, uh, because they had moved to Memphis for a season, and there had been talk of them actually playing here, NFL games here in the Liberty Bowl multiple times, and, and those things have been kind of shot, and they kind of treated Memphis terribly in my homegrown Memphis, Memphian, Memphian mind, and now they were in Nashville, and, and I had been living in Nashville as a Vandy student, and all I heard from Nashville people all the time was kind of slamming Memphis and how they treated, uh, in my mind, the Nashville Oilers, but now the Tennessee Titans, and and. And they had just, you know, almost won the Super Bowl that my freshman year. That was the year where they were like this far away from, you know, from scoring a touchdown to win the Super Bowl against the Rams. And, and so they came into a Vanderbilt basketball game at halftime. And, and me being kind of what I felt to be this like, this Memphian who was going to stick up from Memphis. Uh, I felt like I'm not going to cheer this team at halftime like everybody else. And so I waited for a moment when like everybody was kind of quiet as they were sort of announcing the team and I just started to boo them. Um, and uh, if you know me, I enjoy doing these sorts of things. Um, it's probably a big character flaw. And, and I just remember uh, after doing that, getting very many mean looks and a, um, and a woman, a middle-aged woman behind me grabbing me and telling me, you know, looking at me and saying, that's some poor spirit, mister, poor spirit. And just the whole time, every time uh, I looked at her, she just said, poor spirit, and kind of looked at me um, and pointed at me. And it, it, it still haunts me to this day, her, her look. Um, and, and so I always think of that when I hear poor spirit, but that's not, you know, what poor in spirit means. It's not, it's not like, you know, being poor at cheerleading or, or you know, being poor at being a fan. You know, it's also not talking about the poor economically here. Jesus, you know, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount will address the poor and how the church and how people are to address, you know, uh, poverty. It's actually talking about spiritual poverty here, you know, poor in spirit spiritual poverty, you know, personal and corporate brokenness. That's what he's talking about to the disciples. And everyone, whether you're a Christian in here this morning or not, experiences brokenness, experiences evil, even whether it's within your own self, within your own heart, or whether it's been evil or tragedy done to you. You know, we all feel our own imperfections, and our own struggles, and wanting to be more than who we really are. You know, we experience not just in ourselves, we experience in our communities, in our family, in our churches. We, we experience this, this brokenness, you know, as we hurt and sin against others, and as others hurt and sin against us. You know, something verse 4 and verse 6 uh, touch on if we had more time to deal with that. You know, but spiritual poverty is us as individuals or us as people seeing that we're not perfect, seeing, sensing that we sin, that we hurt other people, that we're selfish. You know, that, that it can be blessed are those who know they are messes. Blessed are those who know their brokenness and who are broken. You know, so to help paint a picture of how weird this is, Jesus here 
And, and Matthew, who recorded it, has kind of two audiences in mind. Obviously, the initial audience Jesus is preaching to, but then Matthew is writing to a larger audience. You know, first century Jewish people, as well as first century kind of Greco-Roman people. You know, both groups loved wisdom and philosophy. You know, both of them, as soon as they heard the term makarios, would, would perk up. They, you know, they loved, both Jewish people and Greco-Roman people loved talking about the good life, loved talking about flourishing and how to live. You know, both desired to be very moral. You know, wanted to know the good. Wanted to be on the right side. You know, for Jewish people, it was be on the right side of the Messiah and, and be part of God's kingdom. You know, for Greco-Romans, you know, it was improvement and progress as a people, being a great empire. Well, well let's move that to today, to the audience of the day. And I'll just, I'll throw, you know, I'll, I'll use my Rhodes students you know, as examples. To my road students, what is the good life? What is flourishing to them? It's high achievement. It's good grades. It's the right major that's going to get them the great job or get them into the right grad school so they can make, you know, a lot of money and be very comfortable or have influence and change the world. You know, that they can have security that they can ultimately have a great house, a great yard, and basically live, in their minds, the American dream. You know, in their relationships, you know, what's the good life? To find friends, you know, to find, you know, the one or a spouse. You know, to, to maybe, you know, serve at a nonprofit, make the world a better place. You know, have lots of fun, but without hurting other people. You know, sort of a political and personal progress, both as a community and themselves individually. You know, basically be a good, healthy person who's constantly trying to self-improve. And that's kind of the road student. I think that tends to be a lot of Memphis. And now let's put on kind of a religiousness to a lot of my students in particular that come to RUF. You know, a kind of uh, a cultural Christianity onto that. You know, that who desire all those things I just said. You know, but they also desire to follow God. You know, to have specific goals, gospel goals for making the world a better place. You know, they often, especially my students uh, at a place like Rhodes, want to be good witnesses by their actions or their words. You know, they, they often desire to be intense or on fire for God. You know, to feel different, to be set apart. You know, to live the best life as a Christian they can. You know, and, and for my students, you know, and, and for me... If we can achieve all these things, you know, then we reach this like some level of Christianity. You know, we become a leader or now we're like a mentor, you know, or a discipler or, you know, God's going to bless us. Not the Macarius kind, but the eulogitous kind that God's going to bless us with things and with wards and with family and with friends. You know, and, and then we can feel good about ourselves, like we've done a good job. You know, it, and I think this isn't just the way my road students think. I think this is how we often think about what is the good life? What is it that we desire? And yet Jesus doesn't begin his sermon with any kind of pep talk about improving and, and being the best self you can be and, and all these sorts of things. He begins it with saying human flourishing begins when we all begin to admit that we're spiritually poor. That. In my kingdom, Marcarius, true flourishing and happiness in the kingdom of God begins by admitting you're a mess. 
And it's, just not, and it's not just the state to enter into his kingdom. You know, at the end of Matthew 4, before climbing up this mountain, Jesus asked people to repent for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus here is sitting and talking to his disciples, those who had already decided to follow him, had already, in a sense, entered into his kingdom. And he says to flourish means to live in a perpetual state of spiritual poverty or knowing of your spiritual poverty. You know, to flourish means to continually be aware of your own personal brokenness, your own imperfection. It doesn't begin with improving, you know, or gaining the right kind of knowledge or theological knowledge or, or having it all together or being on fire and tense for God, or, you know, or getting to that extra level in the Christian life. You know, and, and some of that stuff is not necessarily wrong. But Jesus says at the beginning that to flourish in my kingdom comes from being broken. And if you're anything like me and you reflect on that, and when I reflect on that, what happens to me is my perfectionistic, self-improvement, obsessed soul dies a little bit and gets a little frustrated Because I want to improve. I want to be better. And and so the question is, how does this bring flourishing? How is Jesus right here? Well, the first reason is right there. Clear to us. It brings flourishing because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It brings flourishing because Christians are not saved by their morality. They're saved by God's grace. A gift that Jesus will win for them on the cross and in his resurrection. So it brings happiness because when we are broken, when we mess up, when we hurt others, when we sin, when we continue to not meet the standards that not just God set, but that we've even set for ourselves, we're still saved. We're still part of God's kingdom. We are eternally in a loving relationship with God and nothing can change that. Nothing can take us out of God's salvation, of his embrace of us. Nothing can change that. We've been adopted as sons and daughters, and we are not going to be disowned. We are part of Jesus' community. So even when we sin, even when we fail, it's going to eventually point us back to God's love for us, that our salvation, our eternal flourishing is not based on our works, on what we do, but it's based on God's grace. Another way that this brings happiness and flourishing to us is because it allows us to be real. Because us being poor in spirit is the reality of our lives. It's reality. It's not sort of the false lies that we tell ourselves. It's actually reality. You know, I always, I always, one of the things I always tell my college students is, and I get older, it's, it's a harder example for me as all the years blend together. But I always talk about, you know, the five-year rule. That, and this is very easy for college students, when you look back five years, you know, in your life to when you're five years younger, you always look and are like, oh, man, I didn't realize this, I didn't know this, I was like this, you know, I wish I'd been more like this then. 
Like, oh, if I could only go back in time knowing what I know now, living the way I live now. Like, everybody thinks that way. And I always say, well, realize that as you sit in the pew today and as I stand up here in five years, I'm going to look back at today and think that about myself. Because it's reality because we're broken. Because we're spiritually poor. Another example I always use is of an iceberg. You know, and how they always talk about the tip of the iceberg. You know, that, that when you're in a boat, you see a tip of an iceberg, but actually below the surface, below the water, there's way more of the iceberg than you could ever even imagine. And that's the way our spiritual poverty is. That, that in our lives, I think even God graciously only tends to show us the tip of the iceberg sometimes. Because I don't know if we could handle the sin if we saw all of it. And yet, we're called to be real about who we are. You know, and, and, and I look at my college students and I look at my own life, you know, and we tend to hide from reality. You know, my students, they hide all their sins. You know, they, they kind of focus exclusively on kind of outward behavior, you know, and don't want to deal, uh, and, you know, don't show people their eternal thoughts. You know, again, which one of the things that the Sermon on the Mount addresses again and again and again is people's hearts and their internal thoughts, not just their outward behavior. And understanding that we're poor and spit actually allows us to be honest about those things. You know, but for my students and for me and for, for most churches, it's all about appearance, about looking like you have it all together, you know, about not really letting anybody truly know you. Because if they knew about me, if they knew about my family, if they knew what I was like, you know, for instance, if they knew what I was like in high school, then I might not have friends. I might not have people that love me. You know, that, that my students carefully craft their brands. You know, not just at school, but on social media. You know, Instagram, Snapchat. That, you know, they kind of, you know, that I'm fun and I'm creative. You know, and I take only good pictures. Because they don't put their bad pictures you know, online, unless they're trying to be ironic. Oh, look, bad hair day, you know, when they actually create their hair bad just so they could look like they're ironic and real. Um, and, and yet, you know, as I meet with students and as my staff meets with students, you know, there's so much personal brokenness in their lives. There's so much hurt, and yet you won't see that on social media. You know, you won't see that on display at Rhodes. You know, we don't put our flaws and our struggles and our weaknesses on our resumes. You know, we hide them. And I'm sure none of y'all can relate to any of this. But the person who knows that they're saved in Christ knows and knows that they're personally broken all of a sudden is free of shame. You know, you can admit you're a mess. And Jesus says, this actually leads to flourishing. The state of being able to admit that you're broken and that you're a mess. You know, when people confront you on something, you can actually think instead of getting defensive, oh man, that's true. And and there's actually more to it than that. You know, just think how many fights uh, with Lee and uh, with my son William and daughter Lizzie would end if I could just admit I was wrong without having to like let them know also how they're wrong. You know, rather than to get defensive, say, you know what, you're right. 
You know, it means I should know I'm broken already. You know, and that the communities or people I'm associated with are broken as well. You know, and, and it means I should be feel free to repent and apologize on behalf of all sorts of things and listen and learn. Because part of learning and changing is admitting that you don't know everything and that you do have struggles and you need to change. I mean, that's what's so funny, I think, about Christians is, and we got, we did it here this morning. We just publicly confessed sin. I have unbelievers come with me to church uh, from time to time, and they think that's the weirdest thing ever, that a bunch of people get together and read a public confession of sin. It's like so vulnerable to my non-Christians, students. And yet, we do that probably every week in churches, and we walk out of the church service and don't practice that in our lives. That we act like we do have it all together when we just publicly confessed we don't. And we have to do it every week because we keep sinning because we're spiritually poor. You know, defensiveness, elitism, pride, they're not characteristics of Jesus and his kingdom. And they also don't live in reality. And when we don't live with a real understanding of our spiritual brokenness, you know, great, grace no longer is amazing. Because that's the thing about grace, it's supposed to be amazing. You know, and I think oftentimes, I'll just pick on the South. In the South, I think we like to make grace, you know, fine. It's fine, it's fine, grace. Just like when people tell us how they're doing and it's fine, we're like, well, it's, they're not really fine. And when we just say it's fine, grace, that's not great. We want grace to be amazing. You know, and the reality is that I'm a sinner and people sin. So it's actually more amazing that more people don't come and confront me and tell me all the time how I've hurt them. You know, it's really surprising that my family and my friends, you know, show amazing grace to me every day. And, and that Jesus loved me so much and loved you so much that he lived and died and was raised for you and for me because he loves us even though we're spiritually poor. And then finally, spiritual poverty encourages gospel community because admitting our spiritual poverty actually allows us to be vulnerable, to admit our neediness and ultimately to have real friendships and relationships. You know, and I grew up going uh, to church where we got together every week, and, you know, and even though we said a public confession of sin, it was just like, you know, no, everything's fine. You know, that we would get together, pronounce our personal brokenness, you know, as Jesus would want us to do. But at the same time, we always just wore our Sunday best and everything was fine, you know, and meanwhile, we, bought, we gossiped and judged everybody else. You know, which made us fearful about being real because we didn't want to be gossiped and judged about either. You know, but people who, who feel like they have to perform, people who are in situations, you know, whether it's work or at church or in their families where they cannot fail, where you have to be right at all times, those are the most unfree, unflourishing, unhappy people there are. You know, and this is why all of us, we desire to be perfect. We desire to improve. 
But the last thing we want to be called is perfectionistic. Because we know what it feels like, you know, to be around perfectionists and what it feels like to be a perfectionist. We don't want to be that way, and yet we still want to be perfect. You know, Ed Welch, who's a counselor, says this, we spend too much time concealing our neediness. We need to stop hiding. Being needy is our basic condition. There is no shame in it. It's just the way it is. Understanding this, accepting it, and practicing it will make you a better helper. Your neediness qualifies you to help others. Your neediness, offered well to someone else, can even be one of the great gifts you give to your church. You will inspire others to also ask for help. And then the kind of like, you know, uh, YouTube uh, celebrity TED talk celebrity Brene Brown, who's also kind of a counselor and deals with shame and vulnerability. She says this, because we have freedom, we can be vulnerable. Vulnerability is about showing up and letting ourselves be seen. Because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. The two most powerful words that we're, when we're in struggle, me too, me too. And I think back to me as, as an RF intern um, in Athens, Georgia, and, and I was a very competitive intern. You've already heard about my poor spirit. Um, well, I, I had another opportunity to show my poor spirit. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, I I had gathered together a group of guys to be in this, to play intramural basketball at the University of Georgia, and we were pretty good, and we were in, we were in kind of the end-of-year tournament, and things were going well, you know, until, you know, we had a couple of refs who decided to get in the way of my intramural victory. And when they decided to get in the way, I had to let them know that. And so uh, I began to talk to them. Um, you know, what I thought was in a gentle manner. They did not take it that way. And, uh, and, and they made some bad calls and I let them know. And they proceeded to give me a technical. And uh, then in, in my way, I let them know that that's probably the only good call they've made all day. <laughs> which led to a second technical. Uh, which what I didn't know is if a team gets two technicals, they're then kicked out of the tournament. And so here I am, the intern, you know, the spiritual leader person, uh, having just gotten a group of 18 to 20-year-olds 20, 20 kicked out of a basketball tournament that they also passionately wanted to win, um, not so much so that they were going to be mean to refs. And I remember being devastated by this, having all these guys super angry with me, being super embarrassed, feeling like now RUF. Um, that I was working for was, was getting a bad name uh, among kind of the intramural office at Georgia. And, and I remember the next day walking to the church and uh, my campus minister and the, the pastor there, you know, uh, seeing me and asking me why I looked so down. And I began to tell them, um, you know, and I was like, and, you know, the thing that's frustrating, you know, about it all is like, is that's just not me. You know, I'm not normally like that. You know, I don't normally lose my temper. And they both just started laughing because they both had seen me in, in competitive instances before. Um, and they both kind of looked at me and they're like, actually, that is you. That is you. You know, because that's who you are. That's who you were. And, and then uh, my pastor, Hal, said this. He said, cheer up. You're probably worse than you even realize. <laughs> 
But God's grace is more. God's mercy is more, as we sang earlier. And, and I ended up having to get up and apologize uh, in RUF for my behavior, um, for the group. And uh, it was very, like, publicly embarrassing for me uh, to kind of get up and, and begin to have to, like, find all these guys and apologize to them. And it was amazing what I found was in that whole process, as hard as that was, I still look back at it 20 years later, as hard as that was, all of a sudden, all these guys that I was chasing around trying to get to meet with me actually came up and wanted to meet with me. That all these guys who I'd meet with and they wouldn't like really share much about themselves began to open up. And it was the strangest thing. And I remember finally asking one guy who'd been very quiet up to that point in a one-on-one, you know, why are you actually, you know, you know why are you sharing all this with me? I-, I love that you are, you know, what are you doing? And he's like, well, you know, I, I saw you apologize up there, you know, in RUF. And I just thought, you know, if God can save this awkward screaming guy <laughs> who has a temper and call him to ministry... You know, then maybe I can, I have a chance too. And maybe I can be real too. And that really impacted me that I saw that. Because the fact is that when we know we're broken, but we're loved eternally in Christ, and when we begin to live unashamed of ourselves, but proclaim Christ and not ourselves to the world around us. You know, whether it's at Rhodes, whether it's in Memphis, whether it's here at Grace Community. And not only flourishes, we delight in God's love for us, but as we become more and more of a gospel community to ourselves and to the world outside, you know, bringing others into this flourishing life, a life free of shame, then then we will truly feel blessed. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually broken, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you love sinners. And I pray that, that for people in here right now that feel shame, that wonder, you know, how they can be loved, for those who feel like if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me, Lord. I pray that, that everyone in here would know that they are loved by you. And that actually for them to flourish means for them being okay. That you love them despite their sins. And I pray that you would more and more make this church and the wider church, Lord, a place, a gospel community where people not just publicly confess their sins as just something they do, but that it's lived out in their lives, Lord, and that we become people who are poor in spirit, but blessed because the kingdom of God is ours, and we know it. I praise your name. Amen.